The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 14. We are going to continue in our series, Our Story Begins, the kind of big idea behind this perhaps unorthodox naming of this uh, study through Genesis, is trying to drive home the idea for many months in a row that the biblical narrative is not some separated set of stories about someone else. If you are a person of faith, if you are a follower of Jesus, then this is your story. The Bible teaches plainly that those who are the children of Abraham are those who have come to Christ by faith. And so this is our lineage. This is our history. This is our story. And so that changes to some degree, I think, how we engage with it. If it's more about uh, understanding our history, how it came to be that we could be gathered here today singing together to Jesus and studying God's word together and standing here as a people brought together by the blood of Christ and redeemed from our sins. There's a story of how we got here and this is it. And uh, I'm really thankful uh, for God's great wisdom in including what he included for us to be able to trace our lineage, okay? So uh, that's where we're at. That's what we're doing. We've worked through 12 and 13 over the last couple of weeks. We are now in Genesis 14. All right, Genesis 14. Uh, if you know anything about Genesis 14, you should be nervous for me. Uh, this may have the largest conglomeration of ancient weird names anybody's ever seen in one chapter, but we're going to go for it. The trick is if you just go fast, people don't know the difference, okay? So that's (laughs) what we're going to do, all right? Uh, So here we are, Genesis 14, starting in verse 1. It came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Eleazar, Keterlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. I wonder if Tidal is uh, actually Aquaman. I've just thought that maybe. I don't have any way to prove it, but something worth researching. (laughs) That they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. You guys know how I feel about Zor. Uh, All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Kedalamor, but the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated the Rephaim and Ashtoreth Karnaim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Shavak Kirathim, and the Horites in their Mount Seir as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Amishpat, that is Kadesh, and conquered all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who lived in Hazazan Tamar. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor, came out, and they arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Sidim. Against Kedorlaomer, I had it, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Eleazar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. Now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner. And these were allies with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Then after his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven 
and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours, for fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Praise God for his word. All right, we're going to take verses 1 through 10 together, and I'm not going to read them again because I made it through it once, all right? Uh, <laughs> so let me just, I know we just read it, but it can be a little bit hard to get your hands around, so let's just set the scene, okay? So in this time and in this region, many times every city had their own king, all right? So that's part of what we see going on here. And, and we're given a list of five kings first, and that includes the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, Okay. And then for 12 years, those five had been subjugated by King Ketolaimor, which likely consisted of paying yearly tribute to him. Okay, so he's kind of the top dog in the region. Everyone has to pay up to, for the, the privilege of being under his rule. And they rebelled, okay, year 13. Uh, <clears throat> so those five kings rebelled. Uh, and then Ketolaimor and the three other kings that aligned with him, they come and they attack, okay? And then we, we see that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they not only ran, but they were so frantic that they fell into tar pits as they fled. And that's even more interesting. You, you get a better idea of how frantic they were when you realize Keterlamor and these other kings came to their turf to fight. Okay, so this is their place, their land, and yet they're running in such fear and kind of frantic mayhem that they're tripping into tar pits that they really should have known were there. And, and I believe that there's some wisdom to be drawn from this negative example. How many of you know you can, you can learn things from positive examples? That's great. That's, that's nice. But you can also learn things from negative examples like, okay, that's what I'm not going to do. All right. This would be one of those times. <clears throat> and so let's just say this, unless something really wild happens, none of us will likely have the opportunity to fight in a Bronze Age style battle with literal swords and shields, okay? I know there could be a solar flare, you know, there's, I could conceive in some ways where we end up in a Bronze Age style battle, but it's probably not going to happen. However, the New Testament tells us in no uncertain terms that we are engaged in a spiritual battle every day. And that's true whether you're engaging with it or not. Whether you're acknowledging it or not, it is happening, okay? And so what I want to do is I want to read you a portion of the New Testament that I think highlights this reality, and, and I want you to listen carefully for the words that I emphasize as I read this, and I want to see if you can catch the contrast between how we're encouraged here and what we just read about how the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah reacted to the fact that they were in this battle, okay? So I'm in Ephesians 6, some of you probably aren't surprised by that, but let's just start in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the rest of, and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand firm, therefore, having belted your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hopefully, I'm good enough at vocal tone inflections for you to have caught the contrast words between how we're encouraged here and the fear-based fleeing of the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here's the reality, friends. We are not called to turn and run. We are not jelly-spined cowards. Three times, the phrase, stand firm, is found in these seven verses, along with the admonition to resist this is the language that describes our posture when it comes to the warfare that we are engaged in as followers of Christ. It's not only in Ephesians 6 that we see this idea. James 4, 7 says if we will submit to God and resist the devil, then he will flee from us. 
which is kind of the exact opposite of what we saw in this account. And so I do want to say that when you're thinking about James 4-7, many people, when they quote that, they say, well, if you resist the devil, he'll flee from you. The key here is submitting to God. I just want to say this to you. This is real serious. Trying, trying to fight the forces of darkness without being submitted to God is a great way to get the slobber knocked right out of your mouth. Okay? So, submit to God first. Okay? Uh, but under no circumstance do we see any language that would lead us to believe that what we're called to as the people of God is, is to turn our backs and run. Peter characterizes this conflict in, in yet another way. I'm in 1 Peter 5. He says, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Notice also how he starts. So that he may exalt you at the proper time, having cast all your anxiety on him because he cares about you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So resist him, firm in your faith. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. So this, this idea is, some translations will say, uh, that he roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The same, same idea is said here in the NASB, but I think it's even more clear when it's said that way. It's, the roar is an indicator to the enemy of who he can devour. The roar is the thing that gets you either, you're going to have one of two reactions. You're going to stand firm and resist, submitted to God, or you're going to run. It's interesting, those that know about these things have talked about the reality that oftentimes when prides of lions hunt, the male will come to one end of a watering hole and roar, and what he's got set up is all the lionesses on the other side. And so when all the animals run from the roar, they run right into the danger. And so there's this idea of, in that, even in that kind of natural scenario, it's pointing out this analogy that you're better off to run to the roar. Then you, at least you only got one to dodge, but we're not actually talking about running from lions here, you understand. We're talking about spiritual principles. <clears throat> but this roar, it can come, this fear-inducing roar, it can come in the form of many kind of trials and difficulties in this life. It can be external pressures. It can even be internal struggles. But if we take off running frantically, instead of standing firm, we will often end up in our own tar pits. And for us, there's probably many things that could represent that, but I think for us it often looks like, the tar pits for us often look like little distractions to take our minds off of the hardship of conflict. I think it's things like food and drink and sex and hobbies and entertainment of various sorts and kinds. They seem like a pleasant escape from the fray, when in reality they, they are trapping us and making us easier prey. And, and I want to make sure I say this, <laughs> food and drink and sex and hobbies and entertainment, okay? Are any of those things in and of themselves bad? None of them are. They're only bad when they're outside of the boundaries that God has set for them to be safe and to be good. And that's something that I think is important to say and so we don't misunderstand. None of those things in their proper place is a bad thing. But if our motive in seeking them out is cowardice or an unwillingness to engage in the battle in front of us, then they can very much contribute to our demise. Paul wrote along these lines in, in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 3. He says, suffer hardship with me. So this is Paul writing to Timothy. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. He doesn't say that no good soldier engages in the affairs of everyday life. You have to do that. You got to eat, you got to drink, you got to walk, you got to breathe, you got to do some things you may deem not so spiritual. That's even a misnomer in and of itself, as we're going to see later. We're supposed to do all things to the glory of God. However, that's not the point I'm making now. The point I'm making now is this that the, the word he uses is no good soldier entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. And that's part of the difference. Um, participating in some of these good things God has given us as gifts 
is different than being entangled in them. And a lot of times what determines the difference is the motive for us interacting with those things or engaging with those things, okay? <clears throat> now, I know, I know that I'm running the risk of sounding extreme in some of the way I'm talking even already, but I'd like to just submit to you that the majority of what I've done for the last five or six minutes is read you scripture, that outlines the reality of spiritual warfare for every believer. That's really most of what I've said over the last few minutes. And I think it is absolutely fair and accurate for us to take a sober look at the reality that we are often far too complacent, unfocused, undisciplined, and oftentimes rolling around in tar pits, hoping if we ignore the battle, it will just go away. It won't. It will not. However, if we will submit to God, which starts with recognizing our need for Christ the Savior King, if we will stand firm and put up a fight, we will never fight alone. And if Jesus is on your squad, then the other side loses every time. That's the good news. <clears throat> and if we resist, our enemy must flee. That's the promise of God. But you might say, well, I don't feel like I have the strength to do that. Oh, great. Then you're, you're actually halfway there already. Then you understand the submit to God part. You understand the humble yourself before God part, which is absolutely crucial if you're going to try to stand up and do anything <laughs> with an enemy like we have. Okay, But if, if you've got Jesus standing in front of you and you're willing to stand firm, it, the whole thing looks different. <laughs> It's more just kind of peeking around him to laugh at the enemy about what's about to happen to him. <laughs> you, you feel me? Okay. That's, that's what it really looks like. <clears throat> let's, let's look at verses 11 through 16. You might like those better. I don't know. Probably not. Uh, it says, Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. Then a fugitive came. Somebody got away from that and... and ran and told Abram the Hebrew. Uh, this is the first occasion of the word Hebrew being used in the scriptures. And there's actually a, a fair amount of significance around that. And if you guys are really good and you say amen more than you have thus far, I'll do some bonus content at the end of this sermon. Uh, those of you that are just trying to get to the Bengals game, keep quiet and I'll just, you know, I'll blog about it later or something. Because I have a blog, right? No. We'll figure out some way. <clears throat> uh, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, went and pursued as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants defeated them, pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So we're, we're all the way up now at, at what will be like the northern border of Israel. It's well over 100 miles that they traveled to fight this fight. Uh, he brought back all the goods and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions, also the women and the people. Uh, Really interesting, um, and, and I've got a picture of this, guys, if you have that. Uh, archaeologists recently uncovered a, a segment of, of a clay tablet, and it's believed to have an inscription. Yeah, that's it. Believed to have an inscription that Abram sent to Keterleomor before he pursued him. And so the rough translation is, I have a very particular set of skills. <laughs> skills that I've acquired over a long career. I'm just kidding. Raise your hand if you know what that is a reference to, just so I can see how that joke landed. Okay, great. That's pretty good. For those of you that don't know, that's a reference to a movie called Taken that has Liam Neeson in it, and his most famous kind of lines in it is when you know, somebody takes his daughter and he hops on the phone and he's basically telling him, you can give her back now and I won't kill you. If you don't, I'll kill you. And then that's what ends up happening. So that's why that was funny for those of you that are more spiritual than the rest of us and haven't watched that movie. <clears throat> uh... Okay, so, but in all seriousness, I, I genuinely believe that this situation, how it plays out, it, it reveals at least part of why God chose Abram to be the father of his chosen people. Uh, now, keep in mind, things are looking different now than they did in Genesis 12, right? Remember Genesis 12? We're heading into Egypt, and Abram's cooking up plots of how to tell half-truths to try to stay out of any kind of conflict with the Egyptians, right? So he's, he's operating out of fear like a coward, but we're seeing this arc of growth, and, and it's, it's reminding us again of this idea, which is really helpful, 
that God doesn't just see you how you are right now. He sees what's in you and what he's going to do with you and how he's going to develop you. And so we're seeing Abram develop here. But uh, in my view, Abram is clearly not just a talk about it kind of brother. He's got some be about it to back it up. Okay, Because you've got four kings worth of armies. He's got 318 guys. And, and it's, it's unclear if these other allies brought more people that it talks about at the end. But at the end of the day, here's what we have. A much smaller force pursuing a much larger force. And, it, you know, it, there is, <laughs> there's no hesitation. They just get up and go and handle business, okay? And, you know, you might say, well, why would, why would that? Isn't Abram the father of our faith? Why would this kind of intensity and willingness to, to jump into action matter? Well, James told us faith without works is dead. You can believe God is worthy of glory. You can believe all kinds of things you want, but if you're not willing to do anything about it, you might not believe it as much as you think you do. Amen. I'll say it for you if you won't say it. I I know where the amens belong in the sermon. I'll help you. And here's, here's an idea, because some of you automatically have a hard time with the fact that Abram, the man of God, is participating in violence in reaction to this. And I get that. I understand that. It is complicated. It is, it's not real easy to sort your way through, but here's an idea that is, I think, helpful. It's been said that a true soldier does not fight because he hates what's in front of him. He fights because he loves what is behind him. And really, you cannot reflect the character and nature of Christ if you can't get a hold of that idea to some degree. Because Jesus is gentle and tender. But Jesus is also a warrior king. And when it comes to how he's going to handle the forces of darkness in the end, we've gotten a glimpse of what it looks like. When, when, when war is done with the ancient dragon in the end, it's, it's not patty cake, it's not, hey, how do you feel about this? Our king is going to lay waste to every enemy that will stand in the way of his goal of us and him forever. He will lay them low without hesitation. And I'm real thankful we have a king who is both gentle, lowly, kind, and loving, but also fierce and willing to defend and loving. And those are on both sides of that. And so what does that mean for us? If we're going to reflect the character of Christ, we need to think through. We need to pray through. We need to ask for God's help to understand we are, Jesus did preach the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the meek. Yes, blessed are the peacemakers. Yes, he said all of this. Absolutely. But we also have Ephesians 6. Strap on your armor and get to work. How do I, which one? Which one should I be? Should I be meek and gentle? Should I be a peacemaker? Or should I be someone willing to wage war? Yes. It has to do with what you're pointed at, to some degree. We are called to love God and to love people. So when our face is towards them, we are peacemakers, gentle, lowly, meek. But there, are, there is a legitimate reality to the fact that there are forces of darkness that work in the world. And when our face is towards them, we are armored up. And we are ready to do vicious battle, great violence. Because that is the only way you deal with pure evil. I know some of you don't like that, but, but hear me, the, that violent, love-motivated violence is pointed towards the forces of darkness. We're not pointing that at people. What did, what did Ephesians 6 say? Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against principalities and powers in high places. It's very hard to, to keep that in mind sometimes, but we can't just be meek and lowly and, and, and gentle. There is sometimes a call for war. And some of us, so some of you really struggle with that. Some of you like, yes, let's fight stuff, right? I, so let me talk to you for a second. <laughs> okay. Remember, our battle is not against flesh and blood because sometimes you And I struggle with remembering where that intensity and that that kind of reaction is meant to be pointed. It's not at people. 
And it's definitely not towards the Lord. It's toward the forces of darkness. You might say, okay, well, what, is all, dude, you're, what does all that even mean practically? Well, the, the armor of God in Ephesians 6 really, really does help you with that. A breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace and the belt of truth. You've got all this defensive armor. You've got a shield with which you can extinguish the fiery arrows of the enemy. That's oftentimes thought to be uh, in, in the realm of, of, of the thinking, how those, those fiery darts come oftentimes in the form of thoughts that are contrary to the only offensive weapon that is listed in Ephesians 6, which is the sword of the Spirit. And people hear the sword of the Spirit, they're like, yeah, 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 I'm going to be a prayer warrior. Well, that, like, that's, I actually searched, the, <laughs> the words prayer and warrior are not in the scripture anywhere next to each other, which is whatever, I don't care if you say that, I'm not trying to make that a thing. The sword of the Spirit is the word of God. You've got one offensive weapon. And so that really helps you to narrow down what, what your war waging is meant to be done with and who it's meant to be done to. Because if the weapon you have to wage this kind of war is the word of God, okay, then, then we're, not, we're not cutting people with the word of God. The word of God is a blessing to people. It's good. But you take that word of God and you, and you point it at the forces of darkness. It's a devastating weapon. That's when, when, when Satan came in all his ignorance and tried to tempt the master, you, you, you see over and over again, what does is, what is Jesus use to push him back? The word of God. He's quoting the word of God to him. Okay. <clears throat> As with many battles recorded in scripture, the, the point here okay, is not to come away thinking that Abram and his men were the biggest and the baddest. Their much smaller force would have been crushed, regardless of military strategy, if the Lord was not with them. Much of why we see battles recorded throughout the Old Testament narrative, is to see the faithfulness of God in them. Many times the odds are not in the favor of the people of God. Many times, if it was not for God's intervention, if it was not for God's faithfulness, if it was not for the might of his hand, the people of God would have been destroyed. This is, this is no different. The numbers would have been so overwhelming. Honestly, this one is, this is one of those places where I'm not questioning what God did, but I do wish there was more details to this battle. You know, it says it was at night and he split his forces up, but I, you know, I'm nerdy enough that I want to know exactly what Abram did. How did we pull this off? And so, you know, if there's a class for that in eternity one day, I'll take Abram's, you know, nighttime raid class and, so they can <clears throat> give me some of the deets on that. But, um, some, and I would put myself in this group, even see a nod towards the gospel in this whole thing playing out. Um, Lot made dumb choices. Okay? We, we see now in Genesis 14, he's not just near Sodom. You remember when they had the deal, we're going to decide which way we go, and it said he went and pitched his tents near Sodom? That's where the land was, looked more fertile and all of that. Well, now in Genesis 14, he's living in Sodom. So Lot made stupid choices. We learned last week that Sodom was a place where people were doing exceeding wickedness. And so I think Abram probably could have been justified even in saying, well, serves him right. You know, when that messenger came and said, they've got your nephew, he, I, I don't know that Lot would have been wrong to go, well, when you go live in Sodom, you know, <laughs> when in Sodom, right? I think that could have kind of been his answer and, and you know, look the other way, but instead, Abram left the safety and security of his home to do battle with an enemy that his nephew had no chance of defeating on his own. There's some real similarities between that part of what Abram did and what Jesus did in leaving the throne of heaven to come and fight a battle for us against an enemy we never could have defeated on our own, an enemy that had us captive. We were slaves to sin and death, but because of Christ, we've been set free. Let's look at verses 17 through 20. <clears throat> then after this, his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheve, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave them, or he gave him a tenth of all. <clears throat> so here we have Melchizedek. And <laughs> 
if it, if it hadn't been that we preached through the book of Hebrews within the last year, I would have spent much more time focusing on Melchizedek today. Uh, because we did go through the book of Hebrews this year, uh, we talked about Melchizedek a lot, uh, which is good because it's a wild guy and uh, it's important. But I'm going to give you kind of an abridged version of what's going on here today. So we see in Psalm 110 and also in Hebrews 7, when we're getting to the, like the question of what's going on here, because you know, some of you don't even see that there's a problem yet, but some of you are like, well, hold on again. How do we have a priest in Genesis 14? Because the priesthood isn't established until much later, after the exodus out of Egypt in the time of Moses and the law. So how do we have a guy, how is this guy a priest? And the answer is because the word of God tells us he is. We don't have many more details than that, right? Hebrews 7 goes so far as to say we don't have any record of Melchizedek's mother, father. He's, there's no genealogy. We kind of don't know where he popped up from. But what we do know is that in Psalm 110 and then in, in Hebrews 7, it's explained to us that Melchizedek was indeed a priest of the Most High God and also the king of Salem, which was very likely the, the, the first thing Jerusalem was called, Okay. And so his name means king of righteousness and king of peace. And you don't ever, other than in Jesus, see a king and a priest in the same person. And so later, also in Hebrews 7, we're told that, you know, the reason Jesus can serve as our high priest, right? The book of Hebrews is written to who? The Hebrews. That was a softball, love city. That one was easy. Wake up. Okay, the book of Hebrews is written to the Hebrews. One of the things that the author is addressing is this problem. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Okay, is Judah the, the tribe from which the priests come? No. So, okay, now we have a problem. How can Jesus be this full, final high priest that we're looking for? And the answer is, he's from a different order. He's not from the order of Aaron. He's from the order of Melchizedek, which precedes the priestly order of Aaron. All right? So there's some mystery here. You know, when it comes down to the question of who is Melchizedek, it's, it's mysterious enough that we have, uh, you know, things like actually out there, you know, he's um, an alien. That's a real thing that people think. Um, you know, he's part of the alien force that seeded the earth originally with biological life, and he's just here to check on us. Um, so, so it gets that wild. Um, and, then, and then some less wild things up and before that. <clears throat> what it comes down to, in, in my view, is, is probably two legitimate options. Either A, this is uh, a king and a priest that, that God appointed for this specific purpose in this time, and God did it and just didn't give us a bunch of details about how he did it, or it's quite possible that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Uh, and people you know, will debate until they're blue in the face about the finer details of which way they think that goes, but I think it's suffice it to say uh, the king of righteousness and king of peace, priest-king popping up in Genesis 14, if you don't think it's meant to be a foreshadowing pointing forward to Jesus, clearly you missed the point, Okay. At whether he's just a man that God anointed as king and priest over Salem, or he is this pre-incarnate uh, appearance of Christ, the point is, <laughs> God tilting his hand and, and, and showing us early on in our story a preview of, of where the redemptive narrative is heading, okay? So that's, that's what I'm going to say about who Melchizedek is today, all right? So much more could be said, but we won't. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, just because it's here and it's staring us in the face, is this idea. Uh, he said, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand, and he gave him a tenth of all. Okay? So, if you've been around here for uh, a decent amount of time, you know that. When it comes to giving, we here teach, we believe that the New Testament uh, says we should give regularly and sacrificially. Uh, that, that those are the parameters that were given in the New Testament. Uh, there are many places that would disagree with us, and, and we're not going to fight with anybody about it, but there are many people that think the, the Old 
Testament requirement of a tithe is still binding upon Christians today. We would say we don't think that's the case. However, what I want to say to be even-handed and fair to those that hold that position, the best argument they have for the fact that the tithe would be binding on us today is this account right here. Because this precedes, again, any of the Mosaic law or the requirements that were placed upon Israel to tithe. So this shows us a, a principle of tithe that far precedes even the Mosaic law. Something that seems woven into the very kind of fabric of how God expects his people to operate. And so, uh, <clears throat> I guess, I, I think there are people here, even though you kind of know our official position, you still believe that the tithe is something you should do. And again, we're not going to try to argue anybody out of that. I think to some degree that comes down to a, a matter of conscience. But at the end of the day, um, being a stingy non-giver is not in the buffet of options, <laughs> okay? So if that's where you're at, uh, pray about it and, and repent and, and fix it, okay? Because that's, giving is a legitimate part of how we worship God. It's, it's as important or more than the singing that we do. I would even, I would put it up there with the Bible study that we do together as a church. And why would I say that? Because I'm a pastor and I want all your money. Yeah, that's, that's it. You got me. No, it's not that, sweet Lord Almighty. Uh, <clears throat> it's the fact that uh, Jesus, your king, talked more about money than heaven and hell combined. Uh, and Jesus, your king, in no uncertain terms, uh, gave until it hurt a whole lot. And so if we can't give until it hurts a little in response to what he gave, uh, then something's broken in us. And one of the best indicators of where your heart posture is, how do I... Earlier, you might have been thinking, okay, well, yeah, I'd like to resist the devil, but how do I know if I'm really submitted to God? I, I tell you, one of the best ways for you to find out is to look at your checkbook. Well, that's an old reference. Most of you don't have one. Look at your debit card statement. I don't know. Um, <clears throat> look at what you're doing with the money God has entrusted into your hands. It'll be a great indicator of how actually submitted you are to God. Because guess what? Happy clappy and singing, that didn't cost me nothing. But you're going to go through, if you go through your Bible, you're going to find a few times where men of God said, I will not offer God something that doesn't cost me something. They just knew inherently that that was disgusting. Isn't it? What do you mean? I'm worshiping the one true God here. Okay? So, again, our, our official position is we should, give, uh, we should give generously and sacrificially and, and regularly. That, that's the outline we see given in. The New Testament. For some people, that probably is going to mean a tithe and then some, that sacrificial part. Uh, for some people, it, it may be that they're working up to that by faith. But the tithe is a good floor. Uh, you know, I can say this, you know, Natalie and I first started walking with Jesus together. We, we were taught that, that the tithe was the deal, man. And so that's just what we did. And then when we came to this understanding of it, we, we never changed because it's, we've never regretted any dollars we put towards the preaching of the gospel and the furthering of the kingdom. Um, so the tithe is a good, it, it is a good kind of baseline or floor to, to start when it comes to giving. So I just wanted to, you know, I wanted to grant, I think in fairness, those that would say, Look, man, the tithes, that's it. It's, we're still bound by that. that. That's a pretty good argument for that side of the thing. I still don't, you know, obviously it's not enough that that's our official position. But in any ways, you guys got what I'm saying? I'm done, I'm done talking about money and messing with you about it. Well, let's go, let's do something else, all right? Uh, verses 21 through 24. <clears throat> How are we doing? Yeah, we're all right. We're all right. What happened? Oh, I turned the page. That's what happened. All right. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the young men have eaten and the shares of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. <clears throat> you, you may misunderstand what's happening here to be Abram just being stubborn or prideful. I think it's pretty clear, though, that 
the reason Abram does not want the king of Sodom to be able to say, I have made Abram rich, is because he does not want one ounce of glory stolen from God, who is the one who has brought Abram out of where he was and to where he is. Abram has a great concern for the glory of God, to the degree that the king of Sodom is saying, basically, uh, bro, you saddled up and went and handled this business, so you are entitled to everything you brought back. And Abram, out of concern for the glory of God, and I don't, you know, we don't have a count here of how, much, how many riches he's rejecting out of a concern for the glory of God, but it's a lot. That's the position that he takes. And so what does that mean for us? Well, I think it, <clears throat> it leads us to be reminded of a verse that many of us have heard. If you haven't heard it before, then, then this is something you're going to want to pay attention to. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. I think that's real important because when it gets down to trying to delineate between uh, what we were talking about earlier, how can I be like a gentle sheep in Christ's fold and yet a soldier of the cross? How do I do both of those? And a lot of times what it ends up coming down to is, is what are my, it's not even all the time what I'm doing, it's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Okay, so let me, let me just say it to you like this. If Abram, if that messenger would have showed up and said, yo, they got your nephew Lot, and what rose up in Abram was the kind of indignation that would have rose up in me as a younger man when I was more foolish and had more testosterone, would be something like this. Hold on. D- does he not know that Lot is my nephew? That's the wrong one. He grabbed the wrong one. Now he's going to find out about Abram and his men. Boys! Get your stuff. We're going on a hike. If his motive was pride, if his motive was, I'm going to let this guy know about something because because of me, he's going to find out about the might of Abram's family, right? If that was the motive, I think he would have chased him up to the northern part of Israel and got spanked. But his motive was love and care for his nephew. And clearly... Clearly, we see in the fact that he's not willing to take the treasure at the end because he doesn't want someone to be able to say, oh, well, I don't know if God's blessed Abraham necessarily because I gave him all this treasure. Just the simple fact that that might happen and could possibly detract from the glory of God lets me know that before he went, Abram had concern for God's glory. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. And friends, I really, this is, again, this is one of those places where it's like, Are you a fundamentalist extremist, man? Are you telling me I have, in everything I do, I have to think through everything I do and run it through the grid of whether or not this is for the glory of God? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just reading you 1 Corinthians 10. I'm not adding anything to it. I'm not taking anything away from it. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all unto the glory of God. What would be different, friends, day to day, for you and for me, if we even did 50% better at running every thought and word and action through the grid of, how does this affect the glory of God? What does this say about the God to whom I belong? What does this communicate about who he is and what his values are? Somebody have a pin they could drop? Ting. I know. I know it's intense, but let's keep ourselves reminded of the grace of God. We may as well set the bar where the Bible does, knowing I'm not going to reach it with perfection. I'm going to be relying upon God's grace every day when I don't do absolutely everything and think absolutely everything for the glory of God. But man, I want to at least try by God's grace and by the power of his spirit. Why not shoot for that? I mean, what... What, how different could it look between where I am today and where I could be if I would strive for that goal by God's grace? How many more people could be blessed and helped? What greater reflection could I be of the goodness and the mercy and the power of the God that I say I serve? I believe Abram was thinking about that when he grabbed 300 and some odd guys and said, all right, let's go fight these armies. God's going to be glorified in this. 
And I think that's part of why the Lord was with him in it and why they won. That's a helpful principle, whether you realize it yet or not. Okay, you guys didn't do that good, but I'm going to give you the Hebrew stuff, okay? Um, That's grace right there. You see that? Isn't that awesome? That's how that works. I really don't feel like you deserve this bonus content, but it's all right. I'm going to give it to you anyways. So look at... (laughs) I'm just kidding. You guys have done great. This, there's heavy stuff in here, and I, I get that. And, and I, know, I know you guys are thinking about it. Genuinely, that's why you're quiet, and I appreciate that, okay? Just joshing with you. Uh, if you go to verse 13, then a fugitive came and told Abram the Hebrew. That's the first time um, you see the word Hebrew used, okay? So anybody off the top of your head know what the word Hebrew means? Pastor Andrew, be quiet. Go ahead, yell it out if you got it. Okay, good. I didn't think most of us would. Uh, so it, it means to roughly, okay? These ancient languages are, are kind of tough, but it's, it's to either cross or to pass over. Super interesting. And, and, and you, can, you can establish, <clears throat> I don't have time to take you through it all, but it's, it's primarily a reference to passing over or crossing over water or, or river, uh, and it's, it's the idea, it, it also has in it the idea of kind of being a nomad, but the idea that you're a nomad because you came from across the water another place, Abram the Hebrew, okay? <clears throat> so keep that in mind, and I'm going to read something to you. Uh, this is a quotation from the book of Joshua. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and do away with the gods which your fathers served beyond the Euphrates River. And in Egypt. So in the mind of these people, these rivers had very significant boundary. Uh, they, they were very significant boundaries to them in their mind. Across the river, they served those gods. Okay? So he's saying, do away with the gods which your father served beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served, which, you, which were beyond the Euphrates River there it is again, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That last part, many of you have probably heard before. Here's here's what I want to show you. This idea of, I mean, for for many of you, your antennas should have at least quivered a bit when I said it it means Passover. Okay? Real interesting. You'll notice a pattern if you think about it. If you, go to the, if you go to the exodus of Egypt, there's a pattern. You have the blood of the Passover lamb on the door before you have them passing through the water of the Red Sea. Then they come out of there, then, and, and, and they're in the wilderness, and it's the time of the tabernacle. And if you notice how the ritual worked, as the priests would come up to the tabernacle, the blood of an animal had to be sacrificed before they could start moving towards the holy place, washing their hands in that large laver of water. Fast forward to the New Testament. The blood of Jesus has to be applied to us, and then we end up in the waters of baptism. All of that pattern is contained to some degree in this word Hebrew that they passed over, they crossed over, and the significance of being here and doing one thing, serving one set of gods, and then crossing over, and and the significance and the change that that means. And it, so if, that's, if that pattern is in there, then what I'm trying to tell you is even containing this one simple word that we maybe haven't thought about very much is, is a blueprint for the gospel even. That blood has to be shed. There's blood and water involved. The gospel is, is it, that's what I'm saying, man. It's like, it's like when, you, when you get into the Bible and you start to really dig down and at, even at the granular level, you just keep finding more gospel. You just, the farther you dig, it's, 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 it's all the way down to the cellular level of this thing, man. It is the gospel of God. That is the power of God unto salvation, man. It is, it is the good news about Jesus that starts with the bad news about us. That's why, every, that's why it's submit to God, resist the devil. That's why it's humble yourself before God. That's, that's why all that stuff is in there because these apostles knew they walked with Jesus. They were taught by Jesus. You, the first thing that has to happen 
is we have to come to an acknowledgement that I cannot do this on my own. God, I need you. God, I need you. And, and, I'm, and what I'm going to need is to be forgiven because I have failed. It's the bad news about us. We are sinners by nature and choice, but it's the good news that Jesus did leave his home to come and fight an enemy we couldn't fight for ourselves. And he didn't just do it once and say, all right, good luck. He's promised to walk with us all the way to the end. He's with you now. That should be a great comfort to you. It's a great comfort to me. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you so much for Genesis 14. Thank you even for the long names that are hard to say. Uh, All of your word, every part of your word is profitable for us. It teaches us and it reproves us. It corrects us. It encourages us. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And you've also fashioned it into a sword that we wield in our hands. And I thank you for this reality. Please continue to teach us by your spirit what it means to wield the sword of the spirit, to to don the armor that you have provided for us. Help us understand what it means to fight spiritual warfare. Help us, Lord, not to just get freaked out by that terminology and, and stick our heads in the sand, but God, help us to engage by faith with the reality of what's going on around us. Help us to realize, Lord, we are we are called to be faithful soldiers in your army. Thank you, God, that we don't have to sit and wring our hands thinking about how qualified we are or aren't for that kind of task. Thank you that at the end of the day, you have made it very clear. It is not going to be by our power. It's not going to be by our faithfulness. It's not going to be by the might of our hands, but it has always been about your faithfulness, the might of your hand, the fact that you are the one who has made all things. You are the one who came up with a plan to save us from our foolishness, from the wages we've earned for ourselves of sin and death. Thank you, Master, that you would entrust us to wield a sword in your name. Thank you that you've invited us to be a part of what you're doing in the earth. Help us, Lord, to figure out what it means to live in that duality, to be peacemakers, but be ready for war. We love you. Help us. Lord, I'm tempted to pick one or the other, and I think I, I share that with many people. It's hard, for me to, it's hard for me to keep all that balanced. It's hard for me to understand how to do both, and so I tend to just lean towards one. But God, help me. Please help us to be people of peace and people of war and know when it's right for each one. Uh, we can't figure that out on our own. But thank you that you promised to help us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.